Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here in this episode, we start a break in our series on the prophets, and we have for you a Q&A episode with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. Here, Alistair gives an update on some of his work that he's doing for us here at Theopolis. And then they answer a question on the differences between Peter and Alistair, on their thoughts on COVID-19, masks, and vaccines. And they end by answering a question about how they write their books and articles. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. Uh, James B. John and Jeff Myers, who are normally with us, are away for a few weeks. Uh, At least James is. Uh, James is teaching a Theopolis workshop, an online workshop, starting on Saturday on the Book of Judges. And uh, so he's going to be devoting his time to preparation and teaching that course. And uh, Jeff is on the road visiting his grandkids. Hopefully he'll be back in a couple of a couple of weeks and join us uh, for further episodes. Uh, in the absence of James, we decided that we couldn't go on with uh, with the book of Daniel. It's uh, it's like the uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, an old Woody Allen movie where one character leaves the film and the whole film just stops. And everybody's just kind of milling around, not knowing what to do with them. The Theopolis podcast is kind of like that without James. Without James to, to beat up on when we're talking about... Uh, the book of Daniel without James's insights into the book of Daniel. We decided to put that off for a while. And so we're going to have about a month and a half of other kinds of episodes. Uh, this episode and the next, we're going to have a Q and a, some of you have submitted questions that are, uh, we'll try to answer. And then uh, we'll do that in the next episode also. And then we're going to have a couple of interviews. Uh, we're going to have interviews with a couple of the writers who are contributing to our forthcoming Theopolis explorations series. That's the new book series that we're going to launch. Uh, Hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have at least one volume in print. But Dustin Messer is working on a volume uh, that's based on his doctoral dissertation. And then Christopher Coe, who has been a regular Theopolis student, is working on a study of the Divine Council in Scripture, and he's writing a Theopolis Explorations volume. So in the coming weeks, we'll have interviews with those two, two, uh, Dustin and Christopher, that uh, they'll be... Uh, we'll be talking about the work they're doing on their on their projects, and that'll be a way of giving you the flavor of what we're trying to get done with the Theopolis Exploration Series. So, and then we'll also have some uh, other things uh, to fill in the gaps. And eventually, by the time when when James gets done with his uh, judges course, then uh, we'll resume the Book of Daniel when he can rejoin us. And I hope that uh, Jeff Myers will be here in the subsequent weeks. He'll be able to he'll be able to join us. Uh, Alistair also is working on a. A Theopolis Explorations volume, along with James B. John, on biblical numbers. And uh, Alistair, you said that uh, you were going to be doing some of the writing on that uh, later today, and I uh, didn't have a chance to hear what kind of progress you're making. So maybe you can give a little a little pitch or a, a teaser for the book that you're working on. Yes, it's something that people often feel nervous about. When you get into biblical numbers, there's a lot of weirdness in that area, Bible code, there's a lot of speculation, allegorical readings of numbers, and very fanciful approaches to the numbers of Scripture. But yet we see some very clear patterns. So for instance, if you're thinking about the ages of the patriarchs, you have Abraham who dies at the age of 175, which is seven times five squared. Then you have Isaac, who dies at the age of 180, which is, let's see, it's six squared times five. And then you have Jacob, who dies at 147, which is three by seven squared. And then you have Joseph, who dies at 110, which is five squared plus six squared plus seven squared. And so you have a pattern. You have the ascending pattern of squares and the descending by prime, by um odd numbers of the multiples of those. And so there seems to be a pattern. The question is, what do we make of this? Is this just something inserted in the text at a later point that has, um, it's just a little quirk of the text? Is it something that accidentally occurred? Or is there some meaning in what's taking place? How about the numbers that we see in scripture 
that seem to connect with each other. So we're told that the woman with the issue of blood had that affliction for 12 years. And then immediately in the connected text, told that Jairus's daughter was 12 years of age. Is there some connection to be drawn there? How about numbers which clearly have a symbolic value, things like 666? How do we go about discerning what that symbolic meaning could be? Or the numbers of symbolic buildings like the tabernacle or the temple in Ezekiel? And so these are the sorts of questions that we want to help people to think about and to think about responsibly. Because I think often what people have as a fear is a legitimate fear. They've seen the bad, fanciful readings and they've seen the way that people can import their own interpretation. They can read onto the text and into the text things that aren't there. And so we want to give people the sort of critical skills to discern how the text itself gives rise to good numerological readings and to show that this is a consistent aspect of how we're reading the scripture more generally. This isn't some special um, sort of reading that exists in detachment from our reading of scripture in a typological and figural way. It's just an extension of that. And it is governed by the same principles. It's something that isn't an esoteric reading against the surface meaning of the text, but it's something that reinforces and encourages us in our surface reading of the text, helping to show that these readings are in fact true and you have a deeper support structure of connections to reinforce it. Yeah, I know this is this is a teaser, but um, do you have a theory about the, the ages of the patriarchs and what the numbers are doing there? If you don't, that's fine, because we can leave it as a teaser and people have to write, buy the book in order to find out. <laughs> Well, there's some initial thoughts. I think one of the things we want people to do is to learn how to think about these things for themselves. So when they see these details, to know the sorts of questions to ask. So the first thing that you notice is that what does this do with the patriarchs? It sets them up in a sequence, a progressive sequence, which is ascending and then has the character of Joseph at the pinnacle of that sequence, suggesting that in some sense he contains something of each of the other patriarchs that have preceded him. And so that by itself provides us with some clue in how we might go about reading the text. And if we follow that up and we find something that supports it, I think it helps us to show that that pattern is not arbitrary. And so I think that's exactly what we see as we go through the stories of the patriarchs. And this is something that James Jordan has done in his work on the subject. You can see their stories building upon each other. Each patriarch is drawing upon the maturity of the patriarch that preceded him. And as a group, they're moving forward. And I think we see this in this movement beyond the relationship of um, the focus upon the relationship of father and son in the story of Abraham, or the relationship between brother and brother in the story of Jacob and Esau. And then that movement to going out into the world in the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. And so that is just one of the ways in which the details of the text itself serve to reinforce an underlying theme that you can read through a careful study of Genesis itself. And there's a lot more to be said about those numbers, but that's one of the places you can start. Just to uh, clarify, so is it right that the the squares that, that are summed up to make up the age of Joseph, are those the same squares that are used in the previous three patriarchs? Is that what, is that what, or are they not the same yes. numbers? That are, they are the same numbers being squared. Yes. Yeah. So, so you have Joseph. So you up. have the sequence of seven times five squared, five times six squared, um, three times seven squared, and then one perhaps times five squared plus six squared plus yeah. seven squared. Yeah. So, so jo- Joseph then in that, if that's right, seems to be not just. He's the, he's the climax, he's the pinnacle of the story of Genesis, but it's also, he's summing up the previous patriarchal stories in some way. The numerology would suggest he's a summation of the previous three. Yes. Yeah. And I think we've also we've also got a number of examples of significant um, squares and multiple of squares, perhaps most notably in things like the Jubilee. Um, so these are numbers that are generally given significance in scripture anyway. And this just reinforces that. Well, great. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, 
as you said, there's there there are a lot of uh, speculative things out there, but I'm looking forward to you and James uh, working on it and giving us uh, some some help on it. So, thanks for working on that, and thanks for the little the little teaser. Uh, as I said, we're going to spend some time answering your questions that you've sent in. From what I can tell, uh, looking over these questions, a number of you want Alice, Alistair and me to fight. So uh, several of the questions have to do with differences that have been perceived between the two of us in previous episodes of the podcast. Uh, so we'll we'll try we'll try to provide that. I mean, if that's if you're looking for blood, we'll pr- try to provide some blood. The first one I'm going to start with is uh, concerns the uh, the pandemic, uh, and this is the question that was written in. I would love to hear you and Alistair talk about similarities, and especially if there are differences in how you both responded to quarantines, masks, mandates, and vaccines. It seems to me that there's been some perceived differences, but perhaps not. Also, your perspectives on different sides of the pond would be enriching for how and when we as individuals and churches respond to health risks and concerns. This has come up a few times in kind of side issues. We, we've we've emailed about it and discussed it in uh, private, but we haven't uh, talked about it very directly on the podcast, as far as I can recall. We, we've addressed it kind of on the side in some of our stuff on Daniel. But let me just start out by uh, with the general claim and then uh, talk about some of the details that I, I think are relevant within the pandemic. I mean, obviously what we, how we respond to the current situation depends a lot on what we think is happening. And that is a contested question by itself. What is it? What is the pandemic? How serious is the pandemic? What is the threat of the pandemic? How well do the various mitigation strategies actually work? And I've been from fairly early on, I've been pretty skeptical about the way uh, most European countries, the way most uh, American states, uh, and the way many countries around the world have responded to the to uh, COVID. I don't say that because I disbelieve in the virus. I myself had a bout of COVID. It was a fairly mild one uh, last summer. My wife uh, had a much more serious bout of COVID. She had an elevated fever for more than a week, and she's never been sicker in her life. It, it was a, a serious illness. She was not able to stay home, never went into the hospital. She uh, never had the respiratory problems that a lot of people develop, so we were grateful for that. But I, I know that this is a serious illness, and it's, an, it's a, uh, a danger, especially to people in certain kind of uh, vulnerability groups. There's a pretty strong correlation between, for example, obesity and uh, serious Cases of COVID or or uh, COVID deaths, so uh, general health is a big is a big issue. Uh, my skepticism isn't isn't about the the reality of the virus or the danger of it, or the danger for uh, particularly for certain certain groups. Uh, it has to do with uh, the way that the whole the way that the pandemic has been tracked and particularly the way it's been presented in the media, the American media. I'm thinking of in particular. Well, there's I think there've been some basic. Obviously, I'm not an epidemiologist or immunologist. I've been picking up bits and pieces from people that look to be trustworthy. So that I, I take what I'm saying under that, under that, uh, with that proviso. But I think there's been a, a consistent confusion between infections and actual sickness. Uh, we see uh, numbers about case rates skyrocketing. What that actually means is the number of positive tests is going up, which means something. But it doesn't necessarily mean a rise in the incidence of sickness, or at least not a not as dramatic a rise in the incidence of sickness. So clarifying the difference between infection and actual sickness, the failure to clarify that difference, I think, has been a problem. I think that the the testing itself, from some of the sources that I've looked at, the testing itself uh, doesn't seem to be a, a proper kind of testing for the thing that they're looking for. Uh, it's not the kind of test that you would apparently not the kind of test that you would normally use to to uh, track a, a pandemic and it uh, ends up with uh, um, a lot of false positive cases so there's that part of it that uh, that's just a it, it's I have questions about the way it's been managed from a kind of health public health bureaucracy issue I also have serious problems with the way it's been managed as far as a political concern it's Currently in the United States, there's been a big push, of course, for vaccinations. Vaccinations, um, uh, vaccination mandates have been spotty. We don't have a national vaccination mandate. 
I don't expect that we'll have one, but we'll have vaccination mandate for particular localities, maybe particular businesses and industries. Uh, from what I can tell, the, and the 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 debate is is again contested all the way through. From what I can tell, the vaccine helps some people to have more uh, moderate symptoms when they're when they when they actually do get infected with COVID. So there's some seems to be some mitigation that comes with the virus. Everybody knows now that the vaccine is not perfect. There are a lot of people that uh, contract uh, COVID and you can contract serious COVID even though you've been vaccinated. So the vaccination push seems to be you're pushing a vaccination that doesn't accomplish what it was promised. And it's also ignoring the reality of natural immunity. I mean, there are, I don't know how many, how many tens of millions of people in the United States who have had COVID uh, since the pandemic began but they're being encouraged to get vaccinations, um, even though they've already had it and they have uh, uh, at least equal immunity to the vaccine immunity from all the studies that uh, I've been able to see. There's a, a lot of studies that have established that. So all of that under the heading of I'm, I'm skeptical about the way it's been managed. And that, I think, feeds into a question about how we respond as Christians to the various kinds of mandates, you know, the uh, the, the restriction on gatherings, for example, that, that caused most churches in the United States to close down, at least for a time. Uh, some stayed open, but some many closed down, most closed down for at least a, a few weeks or a couple of months last spring. Mass mandates, which are more in, in inconvenience than anything. Lockdowns, which prevent you from free association and prevent you from uh, you know freedom of movement, which is a pretty basic freedom. All those are based on what I think are faulty original kind of faulty original analysis of what the pandemic is. And so it's hard for me to, that, that has to figure into how Christians respond to these mandates. And the fact that a mandate comes from a government entity doesn't necessarily mean that we simply comply with it. We give deference to uh, rulers, but um, we don't comply with everything, obviously. So how do we sort through the questions when the facts of the case are in dispute as they, as they currently are? I'm, I've been, uh, I've given some opinions and kind of set up some of the questions, but I'll, I'll stop now and let Alistair chime in because I'm, I'm sure that he has different perspective on some of that. I think the debate has been very different on different sides of the Atlantic. In the UK, we have differences on questions of vaccines, on masks and on lockdowns and other sorts of restrictions. But there isn't the same politicization and ideologization of those differences. They're not seen as the same sort of absolute difference in terms of um, it defines what side of a political fence you fall down on. Rather, it's been more a matter of questions of the government's competence, of proportionality, of trade-offs, things like that. Now, there are issues of sensibilities here as well. I think that there are some people for whom a situation where you're being restricted in your ability to exercise your agency and providing for your family, in going out there and doing things and you're being holed up and just having to obey public health mandates and being restricted in all sorts of aspects of your general life. That's a situation that is far less tolerable for some people than for others. I think there's also a certain aspect of um, nervousness in some people that has almost led to a hypochondriac response from some quarters where any sort of risk is seen as intolerable. And I think that's a problem. I think we're going to have to live with an endemic virus. I think we've got a situation where there is no possibility of first zero COVID is impossible. I think that um, herd immunity is impossible in all likelihood too, but we can significantly knock down the risks Um, through vaccination and other means. I think the question of actually managing this from a public health vantage point, I feel for our authorities, they've got an incredibly difficult job on their hands. It's very easy to snipe from the sidelines and to say that we would handle things differently. And to, I think one of the concerns I have is the danger of confusing the sort of knowledge that is trying to manage risk and uncertainty and the sort of knowledge that's tried to determine the exact nature of a scientific phenomenon. So there are some people who've speculated about the nature of the virus and made statements that are very bold 
and tried to determine that public policy needs to be ordered on the basis of these hypotheses that don't actually hold. So, for instance, Gupta was saying in Sinetra Gupta back in May of last year that half of the UK population was probably already infected. That was very far from the truth. And in fact, if we'd followed her approach in policy, it would have been devastating. Um, And so actually having people who were wary of that and were going to take a far more cautious line save lives. And it's important to remember that in the US alone, there's been 630,000 deaths. It's almost two thirds of a million at this point. So this is significantly greater than many people presumed it would be at the beginning. So many of these questions about policies are questions of prudence. And it's dangerous to shift them, I think, into questions of absolute principle, of um, seeing them as issues that are strong ideological differences. I think there may be differences of um, sensibility behind them. There are some people who are very um, nervous about risk and maybe have a vision of a safetyism within society that's not healthy. I think there's also people who can tolerate a lot more of the restrictions because their livelihoods don't depend on actually engaging in um, mass social contact. Whereas for other people, for instance, people in the music industry or people who are engaged in um, many services, they can't actually avoid engaging with people of a large number of people on a daily basis. So some of these restrictions are a lot more onerous for them. I think the other thing is that as Christians, we're not actually, for the most part, competent to judge these questions. We're not experts in the epidemiology. We have principles that can speak into and clarify some of the moral questions, some of the issues of sensibility we can speak to as well. But I think we need to be very careful about the extent to which, on the basis of things that we've studied or read up on, we make strong determinations. I think that we've appointed and elected our rulers in part to deal with situations like this. And I find it concerning when I see people's principles relating to government shifting quite radically when it's inconvenient for them. and when it goes against their political alignments. And it seems to me that this is a case where that's taken place. Um, In many cases, I was following the um, debates about COVID and the discussion online from mid or early, even early January. And I was hearing news from friends in China of last year. And then when it hit the partisan polarized American context, it suddenly went whoosh and it had a very different flavor after that. Um, So for instance, here's a claim from Doug Wilson a couple of years ago about a different situation, um, about vaccines, that do I have views on the efficacy of vaccines? Um, The idea that that even if they were effective, a requirement that everyone get vaccinated is necessarily statist and tyrannical. Why isn't this a matter of personal choice and conviction? The answer is that it is not a matter of personal choice because everyone is everyone else is involved. And then he quotes Leviticus 13. So take this as a very limited claim. This is not a claim that vaccines are always perfect or that the side effects are not a problem or that frauds can never interfere with the science and so on. This is a fallen world and no problem of this nature can ever be addressed risk-free. The claim I am making here is very limited. If a person has decided personal convictions about the contagious degree disease he is carrying. The society in which has decided personal convictions about the contagious disease he is carrying. The society in which he lives has an equal right to have decided and contrary convictions about that same contagious disease he has. And if there is an outbreak of such a disease and the government quarantines everyone who is not vaccinated, requiring them to stay at home, the name for this is prudence, not tyranny. Now, That would actually be in many ways a stronger position than I would hold um, regarding vaccines. But that is very, very different from the sort of position that um, is taken in Moscow now. And it seems to me that we need to ask why. What has changed? Is it the principle that's changed or is it the politics? And it seems to me that in the US context, politics is driving a great deal of what's being said. And 
I would ask people to maybe ratchet things down a bit and think more in terms of government prudence, question and challenge the policies, but maybe um, we should be less um, absolutist and um, oppositional in the way that we approach these things and recognise that our governments have a difficult situation on their hands and our compliance, I think, is important in recognising their authority over us, according to biblical teaching. And so those would be my concerns. Yeah. Uh, several several responses to that. <clears throat> One is, yeah, um, I, th- I think you're right. It's definitely become uh, politicised in the United States in a way that it hasn't elsewhere. And I think that's partly given the particular circumstances of uh, 2020 leading up to a presidential election in which the majority of, certainly the majority of the media were intent on uh, getting Trump out of office and getting somebody else in. So it was politically advantageous to make the, make the pandemic look as bad as possible. But I think that, you know, I think there's a, there's another dynamic here too. Um, If the judgments of the government had been, are presented as prudential decisions, if they're presented as trade-offs, uh, we have to we have to do this. It's going to it's going to hurt here. Uh, lockdowns are going to cause certain other kinds of illnesses to increase. They're going to have certain kinds of effects on uh, certainly economic effects. They're going to have regressive economic effects because they're going to hit hardest the people that are least able to to weather a storm like this. So if it's presented as a series of trade offs, this is the best of a series of bad options. And if it had been presented as in our best judgment, this is the best science that we have to back this up. This is the best science we have for the vaccines. That's not the way it's been presented in the United States. Uh, it's been presented as follow the science has become the mantra, mantra, of course. Science is defined as what the public health officials have determined to be the scientific conclusions about the pandemic. Contrary voices are uh, ignored and you know, sidelined, censored in various ways. So it's it's not as if there's a there's even the impression that a trade off or a debate is happening. It's been presented in moralistic terms from the beginning. It's been presented in moralistic terms. It still is in terms of the vaccines. So I think that I think that that you know I'm talking about messaging here, perhaps, but I, I think that the messaging is uh, one of the reasons why it's become politically polarizing in the United States. I agree that these are prudential decisions. I agree with you that these are uh, these are terribly difficult decisions for politicians to make. But when the messaging is, you're an evil person if you don't follow this directive. And in fact, the people who are arguing contrary to us, based based on scientific evidence, people are arguing contrary, we're going to silence. That exacerbates the problem. I mean, you're, you're also right that the, the issue is about managing risk, which is a difficult thing. And you have a variety of risk factors that, that come down to individuals, um, individual capacity for risk, as well as individual you know, actual medical risk. But this whole thing has happened with a, we didn't know this at the beginning, but the whole thing has happened with a a virus from which over 99% of the people of all ages recover. Even even the most vulnerable older people uh, recover at at a rate of over 99% from, from COVID. So it's a serious health issue. It doesn't seem to be of the magnitude uh, to warrant the kinds of restrictions that have been imp- implemented, uh, and again, I raise the question of um, you know the, for me the the I'll put on a mask if I'm required to. Uh, when lockdown was happening, I don't go I don't go anywhere anyway unless I get on a plane, and the planes all my uh, travel was canceled for a year. So um, lockdown and staying at home was pretty easy for me. In fact, it was enjoyable. Uh, I had some extra kids around, and uh, we had. Uh, uh, it's, we've got a beautiful place. If you're gonna if you're gonna have a lockdown, this uh, we're in a nice place to have it. But that wasn't the case for for many people. I realized that. And the the rubber meets the road for me when you're talking about restrictions on worship. And again, there's uh, you're uh, shutting down effectively shutting down uh, gatherings for worship based on this uh, again this this uh, pandemic that is uh, not uh, not high risk for a majority of the population not high risk of serious illness or death. And its worship is effectively closed down based on mandates that have these kind of moralistic moralistic demands to them. So I, 
that's that's one place where I think that there uh, I think that the various ways that churches could have responded to that. I think uh, a lot of churches that kind of larger churches that moved into kind of a parish system for the course of the pandemic, they continued to gather for worship, but in smaller groups. I think that was a perfectly prudent way to do it. There, I mean, there are ways to there are ways to um, adjust to it, but you have situations in, in Canada, for example, where where churches are actually shut down and 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 pastors are imprisoned for continuing to worship in the midst of the pandemic, even though they were trying to take safety precautions, even if they were trying to take safety precautions. So I think those those are the other. Uh, it's yeah, it's politicized, but it's not just politicized on the on the side of people who are resisting. It's politicized on the side of the public authorities who have imposed these mandates. Yeah, so I'd, I'd agree with many of your points there. I think the concern that will many of these authorities will be dealing with is, first of all, the public is not competent to have these debates um, in most cases. And I think we've seen that, the amount of misinformation that has been circulating and has been truly astonishing to me. And the degree to which people will jump from one incompatible position to another simply because it aligns with their assumptions or their um, what they desire to believe, that is concerning. We can have, I think we really need to have these debates and to have that sort of critical challenge within context where there is a responsible and functional means of testing these claims. And I think that has been taking place in the literature and various contexts, it, but it does not take place in public. And when it takes place in public, it, co- can causes, it can cause all sorts of problems. I think we also need to recognise the difference between aspects of the science that we can recognise, for instance, that someone who has been infected naturally will have some degree of natural immunity. The question is, is that something that should be recognised by policy when it would actually serve to encourage people to get naturally infected, and particularly people who would be sceptical of the virus? And so it would be deeply irresponsible, I think, for government to recognise that natural immunity, even while it does give, um, even while the person who has been naturally infected just doesn't enjoy that immunity. And so the questions of how to deal with these in a responsible way where claims are tested, but they're tested, um, it, we're not just listening to contrary viewpoints, contrary viewpoints that we just swallow because they are contrary to positions that we don't like. But there is a rigorous discourse taking place within the place where that actually would be effectual and it would actually lead to um, light rather than just heat. That, I think, is a real concern, and the public is not qualified for this. And so the question then is one of trust. Do we have enough trust in our governments? Um, Do we have enough trust in the scientific process, in experts and that whole class? And I don't think people do in many situations. And that, I think, has many different causes. I think many of them are on the sides of the experts themselves, who increasingly have tied themselves to ideological positions on all sorts of issues such as gender, on political political matters. Uh, for instance, the partisan stance that the academy more generally took in relationship to Trump's presidency or the way in which um, the expert class related to Brexit within the UK. These are things that I think limit the degree to which people feel able to trust the expert class. They think these people don't actually have our best interests at heart. They're they're on a different side of the political aisle and they actually really hate the people who disagree with them. And so it's very difficult when they're saying you need to vaccinate your kids that to actually approach that with trust. Now, I think there are good reasons to trust the vaccinations, but that requires, I think, a different way of managing trust. And one of the dangers I think we have in the present age is the increasing tendency to restrict our networks of trust to small groups of people and authorities who have to be authorities on everything. And I think this is one of the concerns for Christian leaders when, I mean, my view here is largely my opinion, and it should be taken along with the opinion of any other person who's just a layman on the subject. Weigh up my viewpoint, see if it makes sense, and consider 
where I actually have some competence to speak, where I'm speaking beyond my competence, where I'm just voicing an opinion that should not bear much weight and where I'm bearing something that needs to be tested, but might actually have some force to bring to the larger conversation. And so what I would like for us to have is a context where we have a broader network of trust, where we recognize what we can trust in the academy, where things are weak, where there are compromises, for instance, those areas where the academic process, the publishing process is something that encourages dysfunction or something that falls short of true science. We should also recognize where ideology is in play or certain sensibilities of a class that might differ from others and then try and distinguish those things. So for instance, I might not be very trusting of someone of an expert class in their view of um, certain aspects of schooling, because I know certain of the ways that their ideology impacts upon that. Do I believe that the vaccine is effective? Well, they're wanting to vaccinate their own kids. So probably that is something worth trusting. And I'd far rather trust someone who has a Harvard medical degree than someone who's just bloviating on the internet without that sort of qualification or or who has a qualification in some unrelated discipline. And so for me, trying to spread out our trust broadly, bring many different people who are competent into conversation with each other to challenge each other and trying to go to those places where that conversation is happening and to recognize how our beliefs should be weighted accordingly. And then also recognize the limits of public policy, that you're trying to encourage people as a group to adopt a particular course. And so that's not the context to have the debate. The debate must take place elsewhere within a carefully bounded context, but it really needs to take place. And so I've been trying to find those places and I'd encourage other people to try and find those places, but also to recognise, even when we think that the positions of our governments are suboptimal suboptimal or unwise in certain respects or overstated, that we can criticise, but I think it's important to comply with those regulations to the extent that we can, while engaging as a matter of our public responsibility in trying to change those policies where we can. Yeah. Well, I think that there's um, a couple of things I want to say. I mean, you're, you're setting up the, the issue uh, to your advantage by contrasting a Harvard PhD to somebody who's bloviating on the internet. That's not the contrast we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who are equally expert in the fields that are relevant to the pandemic, who have differing views of what's happening. So setting it up as a, as a contest where the experts are all on one side is certainly not the case. I th- also don't think that, I mean, you're right that there, it's a problem of trust and maybe particularly in the U.S. Uh, I don't think you can restore trust by exhorting people to trust more broadly. I just don't think that uh, that doesn't seem like a very effective, you need to trust these people that you don't trust. Um, that's not a very effective way to get them to trust. And it, it occurs to me that, I mean, we put this into the more of our biblical theological context. It seems to me that the breakdown of trust is a is a judgment against our societies. And to the extent that's happening in the United States more severely than elsewhere, then uh, that suggests that God is confusing us. Yes, of course, we want uh, we want uh, authorities to be com- uh, to be trustworthy, and we want to, we want a relationship of trust between public authorities and and the public. But that's just not there. And I I think when, once that's broken down, it's not a matter of exhortation to get it back. It does seem to me like we're in a position where, uh, you know, apart from God's intervention, that kind of trust can't be restored. I mean, you'll have an election. We'll have an election in a few years in the United States. A new administration will come in. It may be the same administration again. Uh, half the country will trust them. Half of the country won't trust them. Or you you switch administrations and then you have the the opposite numbers uh, trusting trusting policies. I, I, I don't think that, I think that's a that's something that can't be healed just by just by exhortation. The, the last thing I'll say on this is that I, I think that the it's not clear to me if you to what extent you recognize any line of non-compliance. For example, and this is this is I'm not saying that this is a, an equivalence, but the, the civil rights movement began in the United States because people stopped complying, blacks stopped complying with with laws concerning lunch counters and uh, buses 
Uh, and that deliberate protest, that deliberate uh, act of noncompliance was the way that the, uh, the law eventually got changed uh, with mixed results. And more, I think more deeply, there's a, I think there's been a massive change in the culture of race in the United States since the civil rights movement. So that's a point where there's a, an injustice that people, I mean, and you'd have experts and public authorities that would have said, that did say at the time that this is, this is a dangerous disruption. Trust us. We know how to hold things together. Uh, and yet the whole, the movement and the change in law and culture was a product of the non-compliance. So it, I imagine that you recognize that there's a place for that as a political action. And and then again, the, then the question is, where are those points? What's the, what's the prudent moment when we when we have those acts of non-compliance? I would say, uh, public worship would be a would be a clear one where we don't comply with mandates that would just simply shut down Christian worship. So, anyway, that's a, my question though is just to have you think think out loud about the uh, the place where those acts of non-compliance might be appropriate if you think they are. To your first point, I think. Just to make very clear, I don't believe that the science is all on one side. I think there is a debate taking place among the scientists. But I think we need to ensure that that debate is taking place among the scientists. I don't think that the public is competent on on these subjects. And I think they tend to make things worse when they get involved. It will be the person who just has uninformed opinions on the internet and the scientists who just speak to that public audience and not the other scientists and the debate. And I think there are some of those tend to be cranks. Um, I think we do have leading scientists and different um, who voice a different position and they need to be engaged with in a context where their positions will be tested, just as those who are voicing the more orthodox, as we could put it, positions need to be tested and challenged in their positions. Um, On the question of um, where lines would be drawn, I think in the case of public worship, for instance, I think we need to recognise where there is clear inequity occurring. Um, If we are being prevented from exercising a fundamental civil right of actually worshipping, then there are clearly problems there. Um, If there is something that is distinguishing Christians from other groups, let's say from gyms, from from bars, from other contexts where people were gathered together, then that becomes a much stronger case. Where that is not the case, where these are more general restrictions that are applied to everyone, and they're on a basis that is clearly responding to a current crisis and they're applied proportionally and they're applied consistently across many different groups with similar features and not discriminating about Christians. I think that weakens the case. I think we also need to recognise that there are many ways in which you can comply with regulations um, even while resisting at certain points. So it's quite possible to resist an absolute forbidding of worship, a gathering for worship. There are many ways that you could gather, for instance, in a safe way outdoors, or you could gather in ways that um, go through all of the safety measures that you can and yet do insist upon meeting together, but provide these, um, do what, go to the extent that we can to comply with the regulations, to show our respect for the authorities, that we honour them, that we submit to them. Now, one of the questions that I have here is if people took the same approach to submitting to authorities, to wives submitting to their husbands, I think there were the same people who can take a very resistant approach to the authorities when they give these mandates, that they would... Um, be up in arms if people took that same lax attitude to what submission means in the context of marriage. And so again, the question for me is one of, it's one of consistency. It's also the degree to which you are expressing an honouring of the authorities and a submission to them, even in your non-compliance on that particular issue. And there are many ways to do that. I think people talk about this in the context of marriage too. There are situations where the wife should not submit to her husband, but we treat those 
goes context within a broader context of her honoring of him. And so those are exceptional cases where the more broader posture of honoring needs to be exhibited as the clear backdrop. And so in all these other ways, she will be honoring him. And in this one particular instance, she cannot comply as as an issue of conscience. And so when we have exhausted the different ways that we can comply without going against our conscience, and we feel bound by conscience to go further, for instance, in actually meeting, then we should take that extra step out of conscience. But we should be very careful not to just shrug off our duty of honouring and submitting to authorities. And that would be where I stand on those questions. I do believe that there are lines where we can take a, an approach of non-compliance. Right. Yeah, I agree with you that even even in non-compliance, the, the responsibility is to show honour. And it needs to be in the context, as you say, of general respect and honour to authorities. I just, uh, I guess I want to point out just the, what seems to be a verbal tick. Uh, you can, again, contrasted orthodox science with cranks. So I, I just... Uh, uh, my uh, orthodox science was in air quotes. I, I realize that. I, I could hear the air quotes over the, uh, <laughs> over the recording. But um, even, even with that, even with the air quotes, that assumes that there has been, like the US CDC has had a full range of input from different kinds of scientists that... Uh, all of the, the the various states have had input from various sciences scientists who have contrary views about how to handle the pandemic. I just that's not the case for most of these uh, in most of these cases. So there's is an orthodox science because they're the ones that happen to have the authority to enforce their decisions on the rest of, on, on the population. We should probably uh, move on to another question. I don't know if uh, let's try to get one additional question. We could do a short one. Okay. Uh, one question from a listener says, how do you practically structure and balance the process of research, research and writing for a book? For example, do you complete your research along with note-taking, et cetera, before sitting down to write the book? Or do you write and patch together and re-edit the book as you go along researching? For myself, the process is very much the latter. Uh, I, I don't, I don't uh, work out all of the research. I don't answer all my questions and then begin writing. And part of the reason for that is a specific um, gift or flaw in my own intellectual abilities. And that is, I, I can only think through a set of issues, think through a question only if I'm writing about it. If I was just taking notes and researching, uh, it would be a jumble. Uh, I can only bring order by putting it on paper. And so uh, I, I tend to write in pieces. I blurt out a lot, and then I spend a lot of time rewriting. One of the things that keeps me on track, uh, there was another question from the same listener about... Um, how do you resist the temptation of going down endless rabbit holes and intriguing diversions while researching? It's always always a problem, and you never know when the rabbit hole might be a valuable part of the whole project. But the thing that keeps me on track is the imposition of a deadline uh, and the offer of of money if I meet the deadline. So I'm I'm motivated by mercenary intentions, and that's kind of keeps my keeps my research focused. I'm probably not the person to answer this question, <laughs> but I do find, um, for me, it's something that I'm constantly, I'm writing things down and almost having a conversation with what I have written down, trying to clarify it and test it, argue against it in my mind and strengthen certain aspects of the argument. And I tend to think through that sort of back and um, to and fro of conversation um, in my own mind. And then when I'm writing things down, it's almost the sediment of that process. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm constantly arguing against myself and trying to read what I've written in the past with some degree of distance. And then thinking about if I hold, held a different position, how would I go about it? Um, so deadlines, <laughs> I've not found them helping as much as they should. Um, I find... Yes, um, it's difficult. (laughs) And if anyone has any surefire solutions, I'd love to hear them. One of the things that I find is that I'm, uh, it 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 depends a lot on whether I think I know what I want to say at the beginning of a research project. I have some, I have some inkling of what I want to say. Then it's easier to get down at least an initial, some initial direction. But then um, research fills that in 
And in some some cases, it's a matter of research, filling out and enriching what the direction I already am taking. My best experiences researching and writing books have been cases where I thought I knew what I wanted to say, and then the research actually redirected what I was going after. Uh, my gratitude book was a, was a clear case of that for me. I, I started out thinking I was going to tell one story about gratitude, and I ended up telling a very different story about gratitude based on the research that I was doing. But the fact that I had a storyline already in mind gave me something to work with and, and to start writing along that storyline. But then as, as I continued to write and research, it was, uh, it was uh, drastically different. On, in some cases, you know, and I had a pretty good idea with my Revelation commentary what overall interpretation I was going to take of the Revelation, of the book of Revelation. Uh, and so the research there was more enriching and finding some new directions uh, on specific details. The overall, I think the overall scheme of my commentary is pretty much what I had originally been planning. And it's basically the interpretation that Jim Jordan uh, outlines in brief in his um, Vindication of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so my research was filling that that interpretation in, but while filling it in, it also added some new directions and, and uh, things that I hadn't anticipated. So a, a lot, a lot of the if I'm just starting with a blank slate, then it's much harder to get uh, get things on paper. And then I do a lot more research. I get my head full of stuff, and then I just at some point I can't hold it all in, and I just need to blurt it out and get get things on paper. But it's never a matter of doing all the research first and then writing. And it's always the interaction of research and writing oscillating and uh, working together. I think one of the benefits of the rabbit holes as well is there's an open-endedness to them. They are the intrusion of the subject itself upon your plan, and they direct your research and your attention to places that you maybe were not intending to look in the outset. But as a result, they force you to pay attention to the actual object of your inquiry and not simply to the inquiries that you had intended to bring to it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.